jump into our, our teaching series. Um, uh, we have a new, uh, oops, oops, if you turn this on, uh, a new verse, a memory verse. Let's say this together. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I highlighted those two words because there's lots of people out there that are, are doing, you know, trying to reach out and, and be prepared to give an expression, but the gentleness and the respect aren't there. And I just want to say gentleness and respect is the way we want to do this. So this whole series is about kind of dealing with hard questions, the Ask It uh, series. Um, and uh, last week I would have run you through the first part of this, which is kind of the overview of, of why and how we're, we're doing this. Um, and, and part of this is to address the idea of some of the doubts we sometimes have. I don't know about you, but I'm a person who asks a lot of questions and I doubt things a lot, okay? I was always the kid that would raise my hand and ask the awkward question, right? Uh, and, and other people are like that. And the people out in the world have a lot of questions like this. So here's, here's what, I, what makes me think about this a little bit. Only God and man men, mad men have no doubts. Martin Luther, <laughs> way back, right? You know, we all struggle with these kinds of, kinds of uh, questions in, in our lives. Um, and so here's what I know. God is not afraid of your questions or doubts. I know that seems obvious, but I talk to some people, I, I think they, they think that God's like, oh no, you're going to stump me with a question, you know, or I won't have an answer for that, or, or somehow you're going to trick God into saying the wrong, that's all craziness, okay? God is not afraid of your questions. You cannot ask a question that's too hard for God, amen? Okay, it, 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 and everybody has, ha, has doubts about that, and so I'm going to move through this kind of quickly. Um, uh, even Jesus asked questions. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, okay? So even Jesus uh, was, was a part of, of that, that process in our lives. So this series, uh, I am de deeply indebted to a book uh, by Adam Hamilton called Wrestling Without Finding Faith. Uh, it's an easy read if you want to read it. and goes into a lot more detail. But I just want to say that I've gotten a number of ideas uh, from, from him in this, this process. And I want to give credit where, where credit is, is due. And then I, finally, I just want to say at the end of the service, I will be down here. Uh, and uh, if you have questions about what I'm going to talk about or anything else, uh, I would be happy to spend some time and, uh, and listen to you and answer those questions. So last week, I was, I was going to talk about um, kind of why should we believe in God, and I gave that to you really quickly. This week, we're going to uh, go to um, wrestling with the Bible, or can the Bible be trusted? Um, I think this is a, a thing that people struggle with. Uh, I, I, I love the Bible. I, I am enriched by it. It's powerful and life-giving, and I love digging in uh, to it. Uh, and I don't even resent my teachers that made me learn Greek when I was in college anymore, okay? Because it's just so, it just so helps with those, those kinds of things. Um, but there are stories in there, especially if you read the Old Testament, that are disturbing, where God seems to order the slaughter of thousands or women and children or, or all kinds of things in that. And those things rightly create some questions for us about God and about what he, he is like. So I thought we would start with talking about what the Bible says about itself, okay? 
So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Uh, and what's going on is, of course, Paul is the senior, uh, senior pastor, if you will, senior minister. Uh, and he is writing back to his protege, Timothy, who's, who's the young pastor. Uh, and, and so he brings up this issue and talks a little bit about why Scripture has authority in our life and, and how we understand it and ultimately how we're supposed to uh, I- interpret it. Beginning in verse 16, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. Say, God-breathed. God-breathed. Is that hard to read that yellow up there? That is, sorry. I'll change it to another color next time. Uh, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy 3, 16 uh, and, and 17. So the important key in all of this is this idea of God breathed, okay? And, and this is, is the Greek word uh, here. I think I missed a slide. Yep, God breathed, okay? Um, the God breathed part. And, and the question that we want to ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to say God breathed? Because you will find people out there that have interesting definitions of what it means to say God breathed. Uh, What we do know is this is not like a five-year-old blowing out a birthday candle. (laughs) That's not what's being talked about. There's another thing going on here. Uh, So here's here's the Greek word. Uh, The Greek word is theonatos. Say theonatos. I think that's about right. <laughs> um, and and, and theo, theo is God, theology, right? Uh, and then you can see kind of here uh, the pn, the pneumatos is the way we'd say it in other contexts, which is like wind, right? Pneumatic equipment is, you know, driven by wind. So God wind or God breathed. In fact, the word uh, has a couple of different ways, three ways of understanding it. Uh, it can mean, uh, the pneumatos can mean uh, breath or wind or spirit. And we've talked about this before. Uh, so when God breathes into something, God inspirits that sort of thing. Um, and there are four places in the Bible where this kind of concept of God breathing on something comes up. And I want, we've done one with kind of Timothy. Uh, another one is found in Genesis, the very first one. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Breathed and what came was the breath of life. And the man became a living being. He became uh, alive. And so uh, he became not just biologically alive, but spiritually alive, right? He has the, 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 the spirit of the living God dwelling in him, the image of God. Uh, chapter one, the image and likeness of God uh, were created like him. So God breathes and spiritual life comes into to Adam, okay? Another one is found in John. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. This is after the resurrection. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's really obvious here. The breathing is the spirit, the inspiriting. He gives them the spirit in a new uh, and different kind uh, of way, okay? And then the next, the, the fourth one, if you will, when the day of Pentecost came, they were gathered together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, okay, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that escaped, uh, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So you get the message? So when we talk about God breathed, the Bible gives us a pretty clear definition of, of what that means. It means that God puts the spirit life into someone or something when talking about Scripture. So just to kind of sum that all up real quickly, God's breath brings to life and empowers. Amen. 
And that's really good news, amen? That, he, that, that when God breathes, when God gives us the spirit, when God pours that into us, that, that there's something that happens that brings us to life in a, in a new kind of way and that, that empowers us for the, the work of the kingdom in all kinds of wonderful uh, sorts of, uh, of ways. So here's what that means about the Bible, and I love this. The Bible is living and powerful. Say, living and powerful. Yeah. It is unlike any other book in all of the world, not because of the way it's written, but because of the one who inhabits and empowers it in our lives. And I have read lots and lots of books, and there is nothing like the Bible. It's this huge collection of God encounters, right? I mean, people talk about alien encounters. God encounters are way better than alien encounters, okay? God encounters where, where flawed people who are struggling and they're a mess and some of them got some pretty big sins in their life and they have an encounter with God and they write it down. They say, you're not going to believe what happened to me. And in some sense, that was what most of, the, especially the Old Testament, is where these things are going on. Uh, and so, just as a reminder, the Bible isn't a single book. It's a whole bunch of, of books with different authors uh, spread out over 1,500 years or so, different cultural settings, different historical settings, all of those sorts of ways in, in which God, in each one of those and through each one of those cultures and each one of those situations in a couple of different languages, a couple, three different languages, excuse me, <coughs> Um, speaks to his people, and they, they write it down and record it for, for history, for us. So, um, and all of it contains, in some sense or another, either the message of Christ or points us towards Christ, that there is forgiveness from the past, there's grace and mercy, and, and all of it's driven by God's love for his creation. I, I, the, the, the two chapters, one and two in Genesis, are so powerful because they set the stage for everything, created in the image of God and created out of love. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. And the Spirit of God inhabits that, and it makes the Bible dangerous. Now, I don't know about you, but in part because of my profession, I have the opportunity to read the Bible a lot. I've read through all of it a lot. I read the New Testament a, a, a great deal. And one of the things that happens to me, I have noticed over the years, is I can be just sitting down doing my devotions, just reading the Bible like I always read the Bible, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit takes whatever I just read, a verse I've read a hundred times, reaches up, grabs me by the throat, and says, pay attention! this is for you. I'm like, oh, 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 you know, and, and I don't know why it works like that, but it, but it does, and, and the Holy Spirit does that, and it's like, oh, I need to, and, and, and that's that in-breathing, uh, God-breathed element of, of, of the Bible, uh, and it gives new insight and new application uh, and growth. Thank you, Barry, um, and so I want to say about the Bible, it's spiritual, Okay? It, it's, it, it's spiritual. The Bible is living uh, and, and powerful in that. And so um, the Bible is God-breathed or inspired in its writing, in its preservation, and in its reading. So when we talk about inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about more than just the writing. So I just told you about kind of the reading where the Spirit comes. We, we believe also that God has given us all that we need for salvation in the Bible. I mean, there's, there's a, a couple of books of Bible that, that others reference, and we're like, why don't we have that one? I don't know why we have that one. But God, God's given us all that we need because we believe that the preservation has been inspired by God. Amen? 
And then in the writing, and this is where we sometimes stumble up a little bit. There's some differences in churches uh, uh, about this. Uh, there, there are some people that believe in what we call verbal inerrancy. How many of you have heard that? Yep, some of you have heard that. Verbal inerrancy uh, is the idea that somehow, in order for the Bible to have authority, all of the words have to be perfect. There can't be any conflict anywhere and, and that, that God was controlling the authors and they were writing the exact words that God wanted them to have, okay? So some Christians um, believe that God's breath made Scripture verbally inerrant. And we need to look at this a little bit because it does create difficulties, especially uh, for, for unbelievers. Because as soon as you say there are no flaws in the Bible, most of us can go, well, I can think of this and this and you know, conflict here and that sort of thing and, and, and all of that. And, and so um, here's, I'm just going to lay out for you why I think verbal inerrancy is problematic. Number one, it shifts the inspiration and, uh, of, of authority from the Scriptures uh, let me try this again, sorry. Shifts the inspiration, authority of Scripture from the Holy Spirit to grammar. Understand what I'm saying? So it's, we believe that the Bible is authoritative in our life because it is inhabited, inspired, God-breathed, amen? But if we shift it to verbal inspiration, it means that the grammar has to be perfect. And I am here to tell you, there's some bad grammar in the Bible. Okay? In Greek, it's like, the, you know, the translators always fix it for you. But there's a couple of places where we go, I think it means, but what were you thinking when you wrote this down, right? You know, it, there's, it, and it goes, it kind of shifts that authority. So somehow the Bible doesn't have authority if someone forgot to put a period in someplace. They didn't have periods in Greek. But, yet, but th there's kind of that idea. And so that's, that's really disturbing because the Bible said it was God-breathed. It didn't say it didn't have any flaws. And literal readings reduce the Bible to propositional statements, okay? It's got to all be exactly literally true, right? And yet we know that in Scripture there's all kinds of genres of literature, right? You all know what a genre of literature is? It, okay, a genre of literature is a particular style. And in your own language, you recognize immediately what a genre is and you have expectations, even if you haven't ever heard the word genre, right? So if I say to you, once upon a time... Yeah, fairy tale. You know what's supposed to go into that. You know that it's going to have a truth at the end that teaches about life, but the, the story itself may not be factual, you know, all of those sorts of things. Or, or if I say to you, uh, a priest, a rabbi, and, and a pastor went into a bar. Don't get hung up on the went into a bar, okay? <laughs> you know that's supposed to be a joke, right? You know? And, and, and it's supposed to be funny. It may not be funny, but it's supposed to be funny. You may have to give a courtesy laugh for whoever said it. But, but you, know, you know immediately uh, that that's a, a joke. Uh, if I say to you, it was a dark and stormy night. What? <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> I can't hear. That's all right. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a long story. There are all kinds of ways that you would do that. So if I say, roses are red, violets are blue... It's a poem, right? And you know, that because you know about poetry, you know that it's not about the redness of roses or the blueness of violets, right? It, it, that's, it's about my love. If I say, roses are red, violets are blue, I love you to my wife, uh, that's just a, a fun way of saying it. So you have to understand kind of the rules in order to understand what's being said. So if I, I, you, someone overhears me saying to my wife, roses are red, violets are blue, I love you. And at the next board meeting they're coming in, our pastor is a liar, 
Because he said, roses are red, and not all roses are red. You know, everybody looks at him and goes, eh, you roll your eyes and kind of go, you know. Because, you know, it's poetry. It's not the point, right? And so it is with Scripture. You have to kind of under, understand it. In fact, the best illustration I can give to you is from the book of, of um, uh, the Song of Songs. How many of you have read that in... in it's what I recommend after premarital counseling for couples in their first few, you know, months of, of marriage that they read that one because it's really designed for that. But there's an interesting description in there where Solomon describes his love. Uh, and and I, I just want to kind of read this to you. Uh, and, and if they're right and we have to take everything literally, well, let me read it, okay? He says, your eyes are like doves. I don't know. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> hey, guys, next time you're trying to snuggle up to your wife, tell her her hair is like a flock of goats. See how that works, okay? Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, okay? Your lips are like scarlet thread. That's not bad, okay? Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates. <laughs> your neck is like a row of stones, and with that, your evening with your wife is over. <laughs> okay? Why? Because it's not meant to be literal. It's a, it's a poem. And I'm sure every one of those references in Solomon's time represented beauty in, in some sort of, of way. But the world has changed, and language has changed, and all of that. So um, it reduces, the problem with that is it with literalism, is it reduces everything to propositional statements and doesn't allow for the larger understanding of, the, of how we communicate um, and then God's perfection is beyond the ability of human language to grasp. So even if God wanted to write that, you know, give us perfect sorts of stuff, number one, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. Number two, it simply cannot contain all that God is, right? That God is far more than human language uh, can deal with. And so here's my illustration of that. Uh, you, and some of you have heard this before. Imagine that you could go back in time and you go to King David, who barely, you know, he lived in a tent. And then in the, the play, but most people lived in tents in those days. And your task is to explain to David a 747. So you would say, it's a giant bird. It's bigger than our whole village. And the wings don't go up and down. They're just rigid like this. And there's fire coming out of them, right? And, and uh, it makes a huge sound that's deafening in all of that. And it eats people through the side of its head. And we know that because we can see them through the little holes that are in the tummy of the bird. <laughs> now, do you think David's got a hold of what a 747 is? Probably not. Why? Because his language won't support the concepts that we live with today. And the difference between us now and David then is tiny compared to the difference between us now and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Does that make sense? So it's just important that we understand that, okay? Um, and then ultimately, uh, the Bible doesn't say it's perfect in its writing in and of itself. The Bible's witness is that it's inspired, that it is filled, it's filled with the Spirit. And quite frankly, all those other things that are inspired, none of them are perfect. Remember Adam, what he did to us with the first sin? Okay, you know, uh, you, you, you remember uh, the rest of them that are involved in that, it, you know, for Timothy and the, the environment there, for the disciples that had the Holy Spirit come. Anyone think they're perfect? 
Yeah, pretty, so it, it just doesn't talk to it about that. Um, and the difficulty is uh, that, that that kind of an idea gets us in trouble sometimes out in the world, okay? So the Bible claims authority because the spirit of the living God dwells in it, not because everything is literally true. And this is what you need to understand about where we are as a church. We are not in that category like that, but we absolutely believe in the authority of Scripture because it is indwelled by the Spirit of the living God. And I get frustrated sometimes with other people say, you don't really believe in the authority of Scripture. I'm like, you put it in grammar. I put it in the Holy Spirit. Who's taking this serious? You know? I mean, really, we believe that it's the Holy Spirit uh, that that brings that in there. So, um, so, Say it another way. The Bible isn't about the words, it's about the message. It's not about the words, it's about the message. And the message is a message of hope and life and love and God who is creative and God who redeems. It's a really great message, amen? Yes. So it's not about the words, it's, a, it's about the message, okay? Uh, it's not magic. Uh, we trust in the Bible because we trust in the Holy Spirit. So The real problem with literalism is that it makes the Bible say things that it doesn't say, which makes people distrust it. So now I'm going to say something that'll probably have a bunch of you standing down here talking to me uh, afterwards. Um, One of the big things that literalists fight about is the first couple of chapters of Genesis, especially the first chapter, the idea that somehow all of creation happened in six 24-hour days. The problem with that is The Hebrew word for day is most often translated as a 24-hour day, but it doesn't have to be. It can mean just a period of time. And so you can't build a whole argument based on something that doesn't say what you say it says. And so it doesn't matter to us how long God took to create the world because the authority of the Scripture doesn't rest in all of those little things. The, Moses is, is who gets credit for writing the, the Genesis. I don't know if he did or not, but, but he's the one generally attributed to that. He had no idea about modern physics. He had no idea about stars and all of those sorts of things. He lived in a completely uh, different world. And the difficulty is when we go literal, it creates conflict for people. It is very hard for scientists and cosmologists to to believe in Christ if we say that to believe in Christ it has to be six 24-hour days because they've got a lot of hard facts that they're looking at in all of that. And we don't need to have that conflict. So here's what, what the difference between science and the Bible, and this is so important. Science answers how questions. The Bible answers who and why questions. See that, that? Those are two different sorts of, of worlds and, and realms, and, and, and it's so important. Science answers how, how did it come to be, and all those sorts of things, and how many billions of years, and how all of these, these kinds of crazy things that they, they talk about. Now they talk about t- uh, quantum, quantum entanglement. Any of you heard about quantum entanglement? Yeah, a, f- a few of you. This is because I read books I shouldn't probably read. Uh, but it's like how things go together, and, and it just makes my ears bleed. But it's really fascinating. Uh, so, um, but, but how, how uh, is a realm of science, but who and why? In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? Yeah, who, who? And if you keep reading, why? Because he loved us, because he wanted fellowship with us in that. And so uh, it's so important that you understand the difference between how and who. So let me give you another quick illustration of that. Um, uh, How can I ask this without getting in trouble? Uh, How many remember when you were first dating your your spouse, the person that became your spouse? Yeah, guys, raise your hand or you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) 
telling you, I'm trying to help you here. You remember all of those feelings that are going on and the excitement and the joy and oh, say yes, say amen, guys. I'm trying to help you here. Okay, yes. <laughs> so we can all, ex- we can explain that with biology. We can talk about hormones and, and how your face gets red, you know, and, and all of those sorts of things. But none of us talk like that. Why? Because we don't really care a whole lot about the how. What we care about is the who and the why. Yeah, you get it now, don't you? Okay. So, so I, I, it's great that doctors can explain that, but I don't care, you know. There was this girl, in the, it, it, we were going to, to uh, do a worship service at a, at a nursing home, and I remember it was a long van, and I got in, the, the ver- the, not the driver's seat, but the next seat back, and behind me, I turned around, and there was this gal with the greenest eyes and the nicest personality and she understood me, which was really rare. <laughs> and then one day, I was afraid to ask her, one day she came and sat by me. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> Two children and three grandchildren later. <laughs> the who waited a lot more than the how, amen? So the Bible is about the, the who. It tells us about what God does. So um, so what do we do now with some of those hard passages? There are passages in Scripture um, where God orders the death of thousands or God orders the death of women and, and, and children. Uh, there are things, all kinds of things like that that are really, really hard for us. Uh, and so here's, here's what I think is important to remember in that context. People do bad things and blame God. Amen? You've probably seen that, okay? The slaughter of women and children, it all says, God told us to do this, right? And, and, and so how do we deal with that? A couple of things. Number one, you need to remember they live in a very different culture than we live in, amen? They lived in a very violent culture with all kinds of things uh, going on, uh, and people tend to project onto God their own desires and culture and values, Right? that God may not, may not I- embrace. Uh, and in fact, we experience this today. Every war you've ever heard about, if you talk to both sides, both of them will tell you God is on their side, right? People always believe that God is on their side, even when they're doing crazy sorts of things. And so I think those people misunderstood what God was saying to them. And because my Bible does not have to be perfect, that's okay. I think those are warning stories to us that we can put on God our own stuff and then try and justify it. And we hear this today, where people are doing stuff that does not please God, and they're kind of trying to take the brand of God and say, hey, you know, I'm on God's side as we do these sorts of things. I read a story that just terrified me about this very issue. You all remember the Nazis in World War II? Six million Jews, millions of other people killed. I don't think anybody thinks that was God's will for them to do all of that. But they all wore belt buckles. Do you know what it said on the belt buckle of Nazis? God is with us. Can you imagine what it was for a Jew to be under the heel of one of them and to look up and see that belt buckle that says God is with us? I'm pretty sure they didn't think God was with them. Amen? 
So these stories warn us that we need to be careful about how we interact in the world because flawed people get things wrong and attribute them to God. Evil people always want God on on their side. And it's just everywhere in in Scripture. And so when I read those sorts of things and they say, God said to, I'm like, I'm pretty sure God did not say to. Because it doesn't match with what Christ is about. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So the overriding message of Scripture is about God's love and His call for us to love one another. Amen? Amen. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So let's, if we don't do literal interpretation, how do we interpret the Bible? Okay, I'm going to pause right here. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I am going to start on Sunday nights from 4.30 to 6, the class that I've done several times about interpreting the Bible. And I will dig into all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you would like to be a part of that, I would invite you to come. Uh, we'll have a sign up next week uh, out in the, uh, in the foyer. But this is like the 30,000 overview really, really quick. So when we talk about interpreting the Bible, number one, we understand or interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus' life and teaching. How many have glasses? All got glasses? What happens when you do this? You all turn to blobs. I pastor a whole church of blobs right there, okay? So when I do this, then I can see your face. I can see clearly. Did you change when I did this? No. But when I did this, I could see what is the reality. And so it is, when I look back through the Old Testament, I look at the life and teaching of Jesus, and I say, does this square up with what Jesus taught? Because we believe Jesus is the full and complete revelation of God, amen? He's the ultimate authority. And I look back and go, that does not square up with what Jesus taught. They must have got it wrong. Does that make sense? So, so this is not my random deciding, well, I think they got it wrong, they got it wrong. This is the life and teaching of Jesus deciding who got it right and who got it wrong. And so this is super, super important. Filter everything through the life and teaching of Jesus. Amen. Filter everything through the life and teaching of Jesus. Amen. Let me uh, go on quickly here. Um, We interpret Scripture in light of the historical cultural context, okay? We understand that they did things that was perfectly fine in their culture, but is not not fine today, that is inappropriate today. So let me just give you another example. When I was growing up as a kid, 100 years ago, um, there was this thing that kind of went through churches that took the, remember the uh, spare the rod and spoil the child? And it was a teaching that was going around saying, you need to give your child a spanking for everything they do wrong. And so there were parents that were literally spanking their little ones for all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, I understand what Scripture says, okay? But now, all these years later, we look back on it and go, that was just lunacy. It was a cultural thing at the time that it was okay but now we look back and go, that's, that's not okay. You need to talk to your children, you know? You need to, and, and so there's, there's difference, there's cultural differences that happen. Uh, and they lived in the ancient world, all kinds of stuff. We'll cover some of that in the class, okay? We interpret the Bible by asking, what did the original audience understand the message to be? So what, what was Paul trying to say? Not the, what does those words say to us today, but what was he and his culture trying to say? And what were the people uh, who heard it, uh, heard in, in all of that, okay? Uh, and then, <clears throat> ultimately, the proof of the authority of Scripture is changed lives. Amen. You guys recognize this picture? Maybe hard to see right back up there. We had, uh, who, are, who are here today, actually, we had a father and daughter get baptized together. <laughs> yeah. You see, I think baptism is what it's all about, ultimately, that people encounter Christ, they they read his word or they hear it preached to them, and the spirit of the living God moves and convicts them, and they they come into relationship with Christ, and everything is new. 
That's the power. That's why God breathed is so important because God dwells in his word through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. If our uh, musicians would, would come. Um, this, by the way, just another thing as, as our musicians are coming. Palm Sunday, we celebrate baptism. So we have some people who have already signed up. If you know Christ is your Savior and you haven't been baptized, let us know. We'll have a sign-up sheet up uh, next week uh, to be a part of that because we would love to baptize you because the Spirit of the living God is at work in our church. Amen? Amen. Father God, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your, your word, the scripture, Father, that is, that is powerful in our lives and that you inspire it, Father, by, by your presence in it, in, in the, the writing, in the preservation, and in the reading when you bring it to our hearts. We pray that you would continue to make it powerful, Father, and that you would continue to transform us into the image of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey church family, thank you so much for watching this video. We hope that God is inspiring you and working in your life. If so, make sure you send this video to a friend so that they can be impacted by the good news of the gospel as well. Make sure you like and subscribe to the channel so that you don't miss a single video. And as always, we hope that God is continuing to work and move in your life. Thanks again for watching. God bless.